This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au uh, we're going to uh, kick off our series this week called Born is the King, as Hope mentioned. And so this week we'll be looking at the King promised. And next week we'll be looking at the King anticipated. And then finally on Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. at the um, Factory Theatre, we'll be looking at the King arrived. And so I'm really excited about this, uh, this little series, mini-series we're getting stuck into over the next few weeks. So uh, this is going to be a great series for anyone who's interested in finding out more about Jesus, particularly finding out about the message of Christmas, because if you understand what Christmas is about, you understand what the Christian faith is about. So please feel free to uh, invite your friends, neighbours, colleagues, anyone who would uh, like to come, particularly to our Christmas Eve service. We'd love to see that packed out on the 24th. I'm going to pray for us. As we uh, look at God's Word this morning, we're going to be jumping all over the, the Bible today from Old Testament to New Testament, but you can follow along with all of the verses. They'll be on the screen behind me as we go through this. So please join me as I pray. Father, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a, a God who is trustworthy, a God who has made promises that you have kept every single one of them. And so this morning, as we look at your promised king, that you have promised almost since the beginning of time that there would be one who would come, who would bring justice and peace and reconciliation. We thank you, God, that you are the God who has kept true to your word. And so as we look at your word this morning now, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see just who the person of Jesus is. We pray that you would speak to every single person in this room this morning. You would transform our lives. Help us to get a fresh understanding of Jesus this morning. We pray in his strong and powerful name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. You know, it um, it's, uh, requires a certain degree of boldness to make a prediction, does it not? A very bold prediction, maybe somewhat like I did earlier this year during the State of Origin series that New South Wales was going to win and dominate and own Queensland, and I was very confident after Game one, and then game two came around, and I was there and watched New South Wales just give it away. Uh, and, but in my, my bravado and potentially haste, made a very um, strong commitment that if New South Wales didn't win the series, that I would wear a Queensland jersey to church. And as you know how it all kind of played out, I ended up having to wear Adam Podge's Queensland jersey while I MC church not long after New South Wales lost the final game. The reality is I've really got no credentials to be making such predictions, such bold statements about the footy results, uh, partly because I don't know all that much about footy and partly because uh, I can't really see the future and predict it. And so really those, those predictions, those bold statements about New South Wales winning was more an expression of maybe blind hope um, and optimism about um, New South Wales. It seems it happens every single year and then my hopes and dreams are shattered every single year. Um, but the consequences for a prediction like that are fairly minimal. You know, I'm maybe slightly embarrassed as I wear Adam's Queensland jersey on stage. And, but, you know, what Adam intended for evil, God intended for good because um, he's given me a sermon illustration. Um, but the reality is there were people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who made very bold 
predictions about the future and the cost for them if they got that prediction wrong. It's called a, a prophecy. If they got that wrong, the consequences for them were often the death penalty. They were to be cast out or stoned to death. And so if you were a prophet in the Old Testament, you wanted to ensure that your predictions, the, the, the message that you heard from God was accurate and bang on because the consequent, consequences of a false, incorrect prediction were fairly severe. Now, I guess if you're making a prediction that's fairly lengthy in its timeline, you've got a pretty safe bet that uh, no one can catch you out. But some of the predictions that the Old Testament prophets made were razor sharp and pointed and very specific. And so what we're going to be looking at this morning is promises that are made, predictions that are made about this coming king that Israel had been waiting for for so long. And we're going to look at three promises. The first promise is the promise of whose family this king would be born into. The second promise is where this king would be born. And the third promise is how this king would be born. So whose family he is born into, what city he would be born in, and how this king would be born. We're going to examine those three prophecies and predictions this morning. But we need to know something about the people of God, about the people of Israel. Literally, since almost the very beginning, since almost Genesis chapter 3, God's people have been waiting for the one who would come and set God's people free and reverse the effects of the fall, and reconcile us back to the Father, and appoint His King to rule over His people. And so Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for this King. And they've been examining all of the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures to get gather the signs of the arrival of this King. And so we're going to look at three of them this morning. The first is whose family this King would be born into. You know, the Gospel of Matthew, the version of the life of Jesus that the disciple Matthew wrote, opens, the opening verses of that book are a long, long family tree, a genealogy as it's called. You know, this guy was the father of this guy, who was the father of this guy, who was the father of this guy, who was the father of this guy, and it goes on 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations until you get to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. You know, if, uh, interestingly, parents, if you're after some uh, really interesting names for your son, there's a couple of really great ones in there. You could pick, like, say, Jehoshaphat, or um, you could pick Shealtiel, or what are some of the other ones? Jeconiah, Zerubbabel. But maybe, ladies, if, if you're expecting and you haven't really told anyone yet, um, maybe, and, and potentially your husband is slightly boisterous and very active, I want to suggest there's a really good name on that list, Ram. Could be a good one for your son if he seems to carry the, the qualities of your husband. Uh, but there's plenty of names that you could choose from. In fact, Judah was on that list, our son's name. We picked his name from, from the list there. And so expecting parents, I dare you. I double dare you to go through Matthew's genealogy, just pick a name out of there from around. Or maybe even better, write them all down on a hat, put them in a hat, just randomly pick one out. And just, this is what we're going to call our son, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat Sparks. It doesn't really work, does it? But why a family tree? Why does Matthew start off his life of Jesus with a, a gigantic family tree? Why is that important? Well, I mean, family trees are important for all of us, aren't they? Because it tells us something about who we are. 
I remember my grandpa at about 90 learning how to use a computer to try and build the Sparks family tree. And I was actually my, my grandpa on my mum's side, so it's the Shears family tree. And here he is, my 90-year-old grandpa, like trying to use a computer to figure out his family. Oh, now, why is he doing that? Because it says something about who he is, about his family. And so he wants to build this family tree. And here, Matthew records Jesus' own family tree, his genealogy, because there were some really specific promises that were made about whose family this king would be born into. In fact, God promised to King David through the prophet Nathan, all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this promise. 2 Samuel 7 verse 11. This is the prophet Nathan speaking to King David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and, he will, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, I will be, his, uh, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Or if you think of one of the earliest predictions that we get in Genesis 22, a promise made to Abraham, or Abram at the time, that he will have a son, that one of his offspring will bless the whole earth. And so there is a promise here that in the line of Abraham and in the line of King David, there will come this king who will bless the whole earth, who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And ever since those promises, God's people have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this king to arrive. And Matthew's purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus comes in a long line, in a long family history that can trace its lineage all the way back to King David. In fact, all the way back to Abraham himself. And so for the Messiah, the question, who's your daddy, is a really, really important question. Jesus has not necessarily biological claim to the throne, because remember, Joseph is his adopted father, but he has a legal claim to the throne. He, he, he is the son of Joseph, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham himself. He can trace his family back to royalty. So much so that when the angel visits Mary and makes a prediction about her soon-to-be-born son, and remember Mary's maybe 12, 13 years old at this time, and she's a virgin. We'll get to that bit a little bit later on. The angel says to her this in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The promised king that Israel had been waiting for, the one that had been prophesied about, that this king would come, that this king would come in Abraham's line, that this king would come in David's line, the angel is saying, Mary, you're about to have a child. You're going to give him the name Jesus, and he's going to be the king. 
This is the moment that you and your people have been waiting for. And by Jesus' resurrection, three days after he was crucified and laid in the tomb, he rose again from the dead, proving that he is indeed the king who will reign forever by rising again from the dead. And so this is the one, the king that is promised. This first prediction is about whose family the king would be born into. And Jesus is born in the right family of the right stock of the right people with the right daddy. You know, I was reading a a while ago that the queen has agreed that in the next four years or so, she's going to step aside from the throne. And uh, is it Prince Charles? Is he the next? I don't even know who's next. Prince Charles, I think it is, is going to be next to the throne. He will become the king of England. And it would be ludicrous to think that you could ring Buckingham Palace and ask to be the next. You know, you ring up, the lady on the end of the phone answers, hello? Yeah, it's Gary uh, from Sheffield. Uh, just wanted to know when the, king's, uh, the queen's going to retire because I'd like to take over. And the receptionist would say, um, who's your daddy? Because you've got no right to the throne of England unless your daddy is the king or your mummy is the queen. And so Prince Charles is really the only one who can take over. And it's the same for Jesus. There is no Messiah that doesn't come from this long trajectory of family history. And Jesus is the right one. He's in the right family. He's got the right daddy. That's the first prediction, the first promise that is made about this king that is coming. The second one is the place, the location where the king would be born. Very specific and important location. You know, we've got two kids, Judah and Piper, and uh, our kids have been born at opposite ends of Sydney. One in the western suburbs in Penrith, and the other in the eastern suburbs in Randwick. Now, if the location of your birth is determinative of your socioeconomic status and lifestyle, we will have one bogan and one posh kid. (laughs) That's a stereotype, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. The reality actually is that the one that's born in Penrith is probably the posh one, and the one Piper born in Randwick is the bogan one. Piper always says to us, love ya, love ya. Where'd she get that from? One of us, I think I'm the bogan. But for the Messiah, there is a very specific location and place where this king must be born. And the prophet Micah predicts, prophesies nearly 700 years before the birth of Jesus, this very precise location of the Messiah's birth. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is what the prophet Micah says, speaking on behalf of God, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Micah is saying this is the one, the ruler that is coming, the one has been promised from ancient days, and he is going to be born in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. Interestingly, Bethlehem is the birthplace of King David himself. It's actually a fairly small mountain village, much like maybe a small Lura or Blackheath. There's not many people there, small population. It's not necessarily the 
typical place where a prestigious king might be born. You know, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was born and raised in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And that kind of seems fitting, doesn't it? Someone who is going to lead the whole nation is born in a wealthy, prestigious area, perhaps a you know, attended a, a private school in the East and had a very good education and then attended Sydney University and studied law, all of the things that Malcolm Turnbull did. But in Australia, isn't it funny that that actually works against him? He's got to talk down being born in the East and talk down his academic credentials because we've got this tall poppy syndrome thing going on in Australia. And uh, what we really want is the, the Aussie battler who was born in the western suburbs of Sydney, but the problem is that person probably is a Labour person and not a Liberal person, and that may not be a problem, depending on how you vote, actually. Um, but kings generally are born in prestigious areas, in palaces, in the middle of the great cities of the world, and yet this king would be born in some rural mountain village called Bethlehem. Now, we know from the New Testament narrative that Joseph and Mary were actually residents of Nazareth, of Galilee. And so as Mary is pregnant and about to give birth to Jesus, there is this real chance that Jesus, in fact, is going to be born in Nazareth and not in Bethlehem. But Caesar Augustus calls for a census around the same time, and there's no like online method of doing the census, even though that's not particularly reliable in and of itself in 2017, but you had to travel back to where your family owned property and be registered and counted at the census there. And so Mary is full-term pregnant, 39 weeks, 38 weeks, however long it is, she's ready to pop, and they jump on a donkey, and they travel all the way back from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and as they arrive, We all know the the Christmas story. Mary gives birth and Jesus is born where? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. That's important because that's what the prophet Micah predicted would happen. The second promise about this king is that the king would be born in Bethlehem. And so we've got a king here who is born into the family tree of Abraham and David We've got a king here who was born in the city of Bethlehem, and we're starting to see a few dots connect and line up. But the last promise here is of how this king would be born. Not in whose family, not where, but specifically how. You might think to yourself, well, hang on a sec, these first two promises could quite easily be coincidence. Someone who just happens to be David's great-great-great-great-grandson who's born in Bethlehem, big deal. Coincidence. But this one, not so much. This is not a fluke. Because Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah spoke again some 700 years before the birth of Jesus about how this king would be born. And Isaiah says this. In Isaiah 7.14, he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord himself will give a sign, something that you can see and go, aha, yes, this is the king. A couple of years ago, I remember traveling back to visit my family in South Africa and my cousin Josh was picking me up from the airport and I did um, Sydney to 
Johannesburg to Cape Town, back to Johannesburg, and then up to Port Elizabeth. It was a brutal flight. I think it was about 38 hours all up. And uh, I didn't have a, a phone at the time that was working, and all I knew that Josh was picking me up from Port Elizabeth Airport. No idea what car he drove, no idea anything. But I, I mean, I obviously knew what he looked like, but, uh, and that was about all I had to go on. I was just hoping that Josh would be there. Turns out the airport's pretty small, and uh, it was very easy to find him. But Isaiah is saying, if you want a sign, if you want to know what to look for when this king arrives, here's the sign. It's like Isaiah's given us the car color, the car model, the car make, the car registration plates, and the VIN number, and the engine number. He's given us all of the details that you need to know because he says this king will be born of a virgin. This is an unmistakable sign to be looking for. It's not like you can miss this one. Just so you know, it's, it's not a coincidence. You can't just unluckily fall pregnant as a virgin. Those things don't happen. This promise, this prediction hinges on a miracle. Now just so you know, we're, we're comfortable with miracles because we believe in God and it's kind of his thing. That's what he does. He performs miracles. But if you were going to trick the world into believing that there's a God out there who we need to worship, then you wouldn't throw this bit into the story. 700 years before this king would arrive, you wouldn't throw this bit in because then you would have to end up convincing people, or at least trying to convince people, that a virgin gave birth to a, a son. That, that would be fairly problematic, I guess, in the first century to find a young teenage girl, 12 years old, and convince her to um, find someone, anyone, doesn't really matter, get pregnant, and then lie about it and tell everyone that you're really a virgin and God made you pregnant. In a, in a, in a culture where adultery was a punishable offense by stoning, by death, in a culture where any young girl who did that would certainly have been cut off from her family and would never have found anyone who wanted to marry her again. You, you're just not going to find the girl who puts her hand up to, I volunteer as tribute for that assignment. No way. Right? And so if you're trying to make up a story, you just don't put this bit in. It's too hard to try and manipulate, to try and make this one fit the story. So if you're trying to make something up, you'd be like, damn it, Isaiah. Why did you have to say that thing about the virgin being born? Because now this is too hard to try and fabricate. I want to suggest to you, this isn't made up. This is the promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah. This is what happened to Mary as she heard the angel's message 700 years after Isaiah's prediction. The angel appears to Mary, says to her, you're going to give birth. You're a virgin, I know. You're going to give him the name Jesus. She conceives, she's pregnant, and the person that you would least expect to believe a story like that is who? Joseph. The one who knows that he's not the father. Because he's like, until the vows are said, we ain't in bed. He knows that he's not the father. And yet, Joseph believes Mary. Because he too has an angel who appears to him and says, Joseph, don't divorce her like you're planning to secretly do. God has given her a child. You are going to adopt him and be the adopted father of the king of Israel. I suggest if you're going to make up the story, this, this one is just too hard to spin. 
This, this is the one that happened. This wild, specific prediction about how the king would be born. Because that's how God planned it. Because God wanted to give us a sign. He wanted to give us some evidence. He wanted to give us something to look for. You know, there's, um, there's often uh, those, those ads on TV that show up for a new TV show that's coming after summer. You know, we get all the cool new TV shows in the new year. And sometimes they just drip feed you like little hints and snippets of, of what's coming. And you may just get an ad and it's just one word. The word's there and then it disappears. You're like, ooh, what was that? Very exciting, building anticipation. And slowly over the coming weeks, over summer, they start to drip feed more and more information until eventually you get this quite lengthy extended trailer of what the TV show is going to be like. And you're hooked, you're in. You're like, yes, we are totally watching that next year. That's my show. That's my thing. I'm in. And that's kind of what they did with Sophie Monk being on The Bachelor. You know, it was like, oh my goodness, Sophie Monk's going to be The Bachelorette. And, and you all loved it. But that's what, the, that's what the Bible is doing. It is drip feeding, dropping little nuggets of information and, and little snippets of promises about who this king will be until we, in fact, get to the New Testament and see Jesus fulfills every single one of them. All of those promises, all of those prophecies and predictions about Jesus. You know, I've shared three promises with you. Whose family he will be born into, where he will be born, where he will be born and how he will be born. Do you know there are in fact, some suggest maybe over 300 promises, predictions, prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament? The statistical pro- probability of finding one person to fulfill all 300 plus of those promises is virtually impossible. In fact, a professor of mathematics in the States tried to figure it out with his class. He gave them, and believe it or not, his name was Professor Stoner. It's a very unfortunate name. And made me kind of believe, is this story actually true? I had to do a bit of research, and it turns out it is. So Professor Stoner took his, his mathematics class, gave them eight promises from the Old Testament, and they had to work out, try and figure out the mathematical probability of one person fulfilling all eight of those promises. The probability of that happening was one in 10 million. The probability of one person fulfilling 300 plus Old Testament prophecies is one in a trillion, 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 trillion. Basically, it's impossible, right? Basically, there just haven't even been enough people born in the history of the world for that prophecy to be fulfilled. And yet, Jesus arrives and you trace every promise from Genesis to Malachi, and every single one of them, Jesus fulfills. It's impossible to make this up. You, you can't find the dude that fits the profile and then reject the evidence. It seems crazy to me that we would buy a lottery ticket with the odds of winning of one in 15 million, or convict someone to life in prison based on DNA evidence with a probability, error probability of one in 10 million. And yet you get evidence like this of one in a trillion, 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 and we're like, eh, Jesus was a myth. 
that, that's contrary to the evidence that we find in front of us. This isn't a coincidence. This was God's plan. This is God's plan from the very beginning, that he would send his son, that he would establish his rule, his kingdom. This is evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. This really is the smoking gun on Jesus' identity. He is the Messiah. He is the promised king. And it seems to me that even secular history acknowledges the importance and significance and influence of Jesus. Historian H.G. Wells, famous uh, author and historian, says this about Jesus. He says, I am an historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess, as an historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. That's a secular, non-believing, not a Christian historian who is looking at the evidence and saying, from what I see about this person, he's the most, most important person who's ever lived. Why? Because what we see with Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God has made that he would send his son, send his king. And that every single one of those promises will be precisely, accurately, and perfectly fulfilled in him. I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like fairly compelling evidence of the identity of Jesus. So the specific nature of these promises that are made and the specific way that these promises are fulfilled in Jesus is your guarantee of future hope. The specific way that these promises are made and the precise way that they are fulfilled is your guarantee of a future hope. You know, the Christian faith is not blind faith. We don't, we don't read our Bible the same way you read Harry Potter. Fiction. We read our Bible as historical fact. This is not blind faith. And if you're not a believer here this morning, if you're not a Christian, we're not calling you to kiss your brains goodbye and believe a myth. We're saying, actually, we believe these things really took place. They really happened. Jesus was a real person. We um, share a, a, an office floor with two other businesses at our offices over in Annandale and there's a bunch of guys who work for a construction architectural engineering company and one of the guys Ted loves to come in and have a chat and so they, they all know we're a church they know we're Christians and Ted is a, um, a lapsed Greek Orthodox he uh, is not practicing anymore and doesn't really believe it, but obviously still has all of the moorings of his upbringing as a, as a young Greek Orthodox man, and he loves a chat. And so Ted often comes in, and the other day we got talking about Christmas. Obviously, you know, this is a busy season for you guys leading up to Christmas. And effectively, every time we have this conversation, Ted says something along, along the lines to me of, well, that's nice for you guys to believe the myth, the story. It's good for you guys, and you guys are doing lots of good but, I mean, we all know it's not really true, right? And I say something to him in the fact of, Ted, if this isn't true, I'm out. Cancel the lease, shut the office, sell the furniture. We're at, this, this isn't a psychological crutch. 
I don't, I don't need something to prop me up because I'm afraid of dying. This is historical truth. And if it's not true, this is a really lame hobby. It really is. Like, think of all the things you could be doing on Sunday morning instead of coming to church. Right? If this, this is not true, all of this is a complete waste of time. And to be honest, the world ought to pity us as fools. But if this is true, if Jesus is the king, if he did raise, rise again from the dead, that changes everything. This is no coincidence. This is one of the significant differences between the Christian faith and all of the other worldviews and faiths out there. Because our faith says, here is our book. Read it. Test it. We believe it's history. All of our authors wrote in their times and dates and geographic locations and names of political leaders and rulers. Test it. Check it. This isn't the vision of one man who put on some glasses and then magically wrote the scriptures and you need to believe the vision of this one man's very subjective. You can't test that. How do you test that? But can you test the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Can you test the fact that he was a man who worked many miracles? Can you test the fact that the Romans crucified him as a result of Pontius Pilate's condemnation and sentencing to death? Can you test the fact that there were claims of a resurrection and an empty tomb that happened? Of course you can. And there are a whole bunch of non-biblical sources that verify that fact. People who weren't necessarily fans of the Christians, in fact, who hated them, like the Jewish historians, like the Roman historians, they didn't want that story getting traction. And yet they all admit, here is the man Jesus. The question is, who is he? And I want to suggest to you that the specific nature of the promises that are made about him and the precise ways that they are fulfilled not only gives us confidence that we can assume and believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but those two truths give us our future hope. Because here's the deal. God is trustworthy. He is. God has never, ever, once broken a promise. You're in a world of broken promises. We're crying out for someone who we can take them at their word and believe it. The broken promise of till death do us part. The broken promise of parents who say one thing and do another and crush a child's trust. The broken promises of politicians who promise one thing and then get elected and do another the contracts that we all sign because we know that we can't trust people's words. But I want to suggest to you there is one that we can trust. There is someone who has never, ever, ever broken a promise. God does what he says every single time. When God promised to fix the mess of this world that we'd created, when God promised to send his son a king, when God promised to restore justice, when God promised to reconcile his people back to himself, God kept every single one of those promises, every single one in Christ. And since God has kept his promises, 
doesn't that mean that his track record is good? We ought to believe that he will keep whatever future promise he has for us. So when God says, if you believe in me, if you believe in my son, you will have eternal life. God can be trusted. You can bet he's going to do that. When God says, in my fa- when Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms and I'm going to prepare one for you. You can bet that God's going to do that. When God promises that there will be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain or sickness for the old order has passed away. When God promises, I am making all things new, you can bet that God will keep His promise. He's good. He can be trusted. His track record is impeccably perfect. I love that verse from Numbers 23 verse 19 and and just wanted to read it from the New Living Translation this morning. God is not a man so he does not lie. He's not human so he doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken, ever and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Church, every promise finds its yes and amen and fulfillment in Jesus. Every single one of them. God can be trusted. What are you trusting this morning? What are you trusting in? Career? Spouse? Family? Superannuation plan? House? Is it a good enough foundation to build your life on? Has any of those things ever kept a promise so purely that you can trust any of that completely? I want to suggest that we all need to build our lives on something that can be trustworthy. We all need to build our lives on something that will not fail us or let us down or leave us broken and bitter and hurt. And the only thing is God. The only thing is the one who made the promise that he would make all things new, that he would deal with our sin by sending his son to die on the cross. Forgive us, give us a fresh start and a future hope. And that promise is certain and guaranteed. And so my encouragement for us this morning as we head into Christmas and all the the joys and often the sadness of this season that we find a good place to moor our lives to. And there's nothing better than the promises of God. And we're going to respond to this great God this morning in worship. So the band's going to come out and we're going to declare the praises of the one who has made promises that are good and sure and perfect and trustworthy. But if you have anything that you need prayer for this morning, our prayer team would also love to pray for you, whatever it is, big or small. There is nothing too small that God does not want to hear. Our prayer team will be over the side against the exit doors there and they would love to pray for you. Whatever need you have, you can identify our prayer team by the orange lanyards around their neck. They would love to pray for you this morning. So please, um, please use that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Is that a good thing to do? Good. Why don't you guys stand on your feet?
Let me pray for us. I'm going to respond in worship and prayer to our good and gracious God. Father God, we thank you this morning that you are the God who is trustworthy, that every promise you have ever made is certain. Father, we want to build our life on something that will not let us down. We thank you that in Christ, we have the promise of new life, fresh start. God, I pray that that is the thing that we would build our life, our identity, our purpose on. And so I pray that you would strengthen those who are weak this morning, those who are feeling discouraged. Pray that you would encourage the strong to continue to put Jesus front and center. God, help all of us, all of us to trust you. Because in the end, there is no one else. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're good. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name.